Welcome to the DTB podcast for June 2020, volume 58, number six. My name is David Fazakli and I'm DTB's deputy editor. Hello, I'm James Cave, uh, DTB editor-in-chief. Uh, for anyone who heard uh, last month's podcast, it's a relief that you've got more than one voice to uh, listen to this time. So we welcome back James, who's been uh, busy in COVID land for the last few weeks. So uh, James, tell us what life's been like. So it's been it's been a fascinating time, um, David. Lots of highs, lots of lows. I think uh, certainly in general practice, and I think in most parts of the NHS and the wider uh, authorities, local authorities, has been a, a sea change in the way we work. So we're now uh, phone triaging all our calls um, to patients, uh, and that's changed the relationship we have. It's changed the way we prescribe. Um, I think there'll, there'll be some fascinating work to be done when this is all over, looking at prescriptions and, and what happened to them during the, 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 the pandemic. I think, first of all, we've seen huge demands from patients for medication, particularly asthmatics. Asthmatics who have never been very good at taking their inhalers have been coming out of the woodwork wanting to have regular inhalers now. At the same time, there's obviously been concerns about other medications, which I think we're going to talk about later. Um, and I think, you know, do you do you see a patient with the symptoms of a sore throat or do you prescribe for them over the phone? These are the sorts of dilemmas that we've been facing, you know, just the simple basic stuff, which um, do raise some therapeutic conundrums. Um, so, yes, busy, busy times. Um, I think we now got ourselves together in the sense that we have a a day that works for the practice. Uh, we had some illnesses at the beginning amongst our staff, but they've um, thankfully been much less recently. So I think um, fascinating time and there'll be a lot to talk about um, with regard to the therapeutics of this pandemic in, in, in the months to come. Um, and I think we should start probably with, with your editorial, if we may, um, de-prescribing in the time of COVID. Um, so what, what have you been talking about uh, uh, this month? Well, I thought that, I mean, there's been so much media attention during the whole pandemic so far about things like testing kits, um, PPE inflators, but we've not heard quite so much about medicine. So I thought we'd have a quick look at it. But there have been a couple of medicines related issues that have cropped up in the medical press and they have developed a bit of a life of their own. And I guess, intriguingly, both are focused on the, on the way that coronavirus gains entry into cells. And we're now all experts on this because it's, it's been uh, relayed in the, in the media so often. But obviously, coronavirus seems to get into cells using angiotensin converting enzyme 2. And so a hypothesis was proposed quite early saying, well, OK, if it uses this, this enzyme, does that mean that drugs that act on angiotensin converting enzyme 2, uh, things like ACE inhibitors and even ibuprofen, does that either increase your susceptibility to coronavirus or does it make the disease worse? Uh, and so there'll be a whole series of questions in the media, uh, particularly in the medical press, about the safety of using ibuprofen to manage symptoms uh, and whether there's a risk uh, for the general use of ACE inhibitors or ARBs, so should pa patients stop taking them? And I guess what we tried to what I tried to look at in the editorial is we've got lots of organizations, clinical bodies, regulatory authorities attempting to assess the evidence and give advice. But you know, at the end of the day, there isn't much evidence to go on. 
So what what do we do? And does this raise a question about about deprescribing? Absolutely. I think you you make it very clear that one of the problems is that you have known benefits of these drugs, and you're trying to balance them with perhaps unknown harms or just unknown perhaps benefits as well. So you have this sort of difficult issue. And I think um, it's not just been ACE inhibitors and ARBs. You do mention perhaps some of those drugs that might also increase your risk of pneumonia. Yes, I mean, just you know, then extending the question out. So if you've got, you know, we know that PPIs, yes, the risk is low, but they are associated with increased risk of pneumonia. Uh, opioids, respiratory depression, benzodiazepines, so there's a whole host of drugs that we know might worsen respiratory function. But what do you do with those? Do you, do you start to deprescribe them? And so start to questioning that actually in the middle of a pandemic probably is not the right time to start doing this um, for all sorts of reasons. As, as you point out, kind of capacity is, is, has been altered. Uh, community pharmacy is extremely busy and you know, chasing their tails and trying to just get medicines out to patients, haven't got time to do all the, the detailed counselling that would go with deprescribing. Um, and then there's a whole unknown thing that if you start to mess around with the pharmaceutical supply chain, start to use different medicines or change drugs that you're using, what will happen? Will we start to run out? Because you say the demand on inhalers was, was enormous. I mean, did you have problems getting hold of them? Well, absolutely. And of course, the worst thing you can do is is then have to offer an inhaler, which, as you say, you aren't then particularly able to demonstrate how they should use it. And therefore, that might reduce the um, uh, treatment they're having and that they may, may lead to an exacerbation of their asthma and make them more at risk. So you're absolutely right. It, it, it has been a minefield. You know, we've had issues around whether we should be switching patients to DOAX rather than warfarin because of the need to have blood tests for warfarin. But then if everyone switches to DOAC, would there be a supply issue? And switching someone from a DOAC to warfarin <laughs> would be a nightmare um, if you haven't got the ability to closely monitor. So you're it, right, it's been, a, it's been a very interesting sort of therapeutic set of conundrums. And as you say, I think deprescribing is all about reducing risks. And there's a real issue here that actually you do nothing of the kind if you start tinkering. And just at the moment, it's not doesn't feel at all the right time to do this. And and yes, once we settle down, whatever the, the next phase of this um, pandemic will be, once we settle down into a more stable way of working, then might be the time to start thinking about these things. But just at the peak of the crisis, probably not. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think perhaps one of the things that comes out of all this is that I think people we've talked about people's health um, in a little bit of a vacuum, perhaps. I think a lot of people on their day-to-day -day lives they they have their diabetes and they have their blood pressure and they just accept that they take their pills and i think one of the things that the pandemic might do is might just get people to think a bit more carefully about their health and perhaps think that actually there is a really good reason why i should lose some weight not just because the doctor wants me to but actually because there really is something out there which is giving me a high risk and perhaps i i just need to be more motivated so i think one of the things that will come out of this will be people perhaps much more interested in how their health and how their comorbidities might affect their health. And I'd be interested to see whether during this whole period, whether um, adherence to medicines has, has improved, you know, with suddenly people actually wanting to take their medicines and what, what impact that has. So there's an awful lot of, you know, interesting data to collect and, and research to be done 
um, yep. to see what impact this has had. Yeah, fascinating, okay. fascinating times to come, hopefully. And just leading on from that, I thought we'd probably just touch on the DTB select item that we've got this month. Last month, we, we highlighted, or I highlighted the EMA's discussion on ibuprofen and whether there was a risk with that. This month, we focused on their statement on the use of drugs acting on the renin angiotensin system um, during the pandemic. And much as they said with ibuprofen, they've looked at the data to see where, whether there's, there's an issue. Um, did you have any thoughts on what, what EMA have said and whether it changes anything we should be doing? I, I, I don't think so. I, mean, I think what was fascinating was how um, resounding the noise has been from everyone interested in uh, cardiovascular disease, the European Society of Cardiology, the American College of Cardiology, the American Heart Association, you know, everyone has been saying, keep taking your ACE inhibitors and ARBs. So I, I think the consensus, whether it's right or wrong, but certainly the consensus is clear at the moment that um, we don't stop these drugs. There's no clinical or epidemiological evidence that these drugs worsen outcomes with COVID-19. And I think I think I've only seen one, possibly two, comments saying it might be worth thinking about stopping them. But again, it gave no practical in indication of how you would do this and what message you'd give to the patient. Exactly, and they and they do form such a central part of the management of hypertension that um, the unexpected consequences of stopping them might be far worse. Absolutely. Okay. Thank you. Um, a different subject. Let's let's talk about our main article this month. So we've gone back to uh, an old chestnut, non-steroidals, gastroprotection, um, and how to minimise risk. Anything strike you from this as what's changed, or any key messages that you think are worth pulling out? Yes, I mean, I I thought this was very timely, but hey, I'm the editor. I I would say that, but I think it is because I think. The management of pain in general practice is in a state of flux and, you know, opioids have had a spotlight on them now for some months and years. And there's a very clear demand to try and find other modalities to treat pain. And non-steroidals are a group of drugs that have actually been declining in use. But I wonder and I expect that that might be reversed as opioids are pushed to the to the sort of third or fourth line, particularly for chronic pain. So I think it's very timely. So that was the first thing I thought was I'm, I'm glad we're dealing with this. Obviously, the, one of the motivations for us um, and for asking Martin Bradley to write this um, review for us was that we now have a, a systematic review that has compared the various options of a COX-2 inhibitor with a PPI, without a, a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug, with a PPI and without. So we do have some more information, I think, to offer um, prescribers to give them a, a feel for the risk associated with using these drugs. And I think that's very important. Well, I thought what was, was particularly helpful with the way Martin's gone through the article, which is, you know, set out what the problem is, look at the risk factors and drew in some of the um, information from NICE's clinical knowledge summary about how to stratify patients according to, to risk and, and work out what you might then want to do with them, but also thinking about ways of minimizing the risk before you even think about using um, some sort of gastric protection. Um, it's quite a useful way of just thinking about it. But 
I guess the other thing that struck me was, as you say, that, that meta-analysis gives you some very useful numbers to think about um, the difference in the risk of an endoscopic ulcer, a symptomatic ulcer, and an ulcer complication. And it's for me, it set it a bit more in context when you actually looked at the numbers needed to treat. You're right. And I think I, I have to say, I, I did feel I, I got quite sort of um, uh, confused, I suppose, because it is, it is, there is a big difference between an endoscopically demonstrated ulcer and someone who's actually got ulcer complications. Um, and I suppose you have to sort of, I suppose, decide in many respects if you want to use these figures in front of a patient I think we have to sort of work out which one you want to use and and use that in your description otherwise I think if if we start trying to explain the the differences between them all I mean I was I was particularly taken I suppose by the endoscopic ulcers um because I think they 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 tell the story in a way that's quite clear so I was quite surprised to learn that you know, give a patient a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug and about 16%, so that's what one in seven people will have endoscopic um, ulcers. Uh, and you reduce that to less than uh, 1%, just half a percentage, if you give them a COX-2 inhibitor with a PPI. And that's a number needed to treat <clears throat> of only seven. So I think, I, th I think it's, it's, I think that for me was perhaps the most telling. You're right. If you look at ulcer complications or GI side effects, you have much bigger numbers needed to treat. But I just thought that actually endoscopic ulcers and the numbers that were given there were, were quite telling for patients. And I think bring out to them how important it is to follow the advice on how you take these drugs and also to minimize the lowest dose for the shortest length of time. And so in, in your clinical practice, do you have an approach you take with patients? You know, if somebody comes in, they're going to need an steroidal, they're of a certain age and other risk factors. What's your approach? Yeah, so I do. And I'm interested, I, I, I don't use COX-2 inhibitors at all. And the reason I don't use them is because of their cardiovascular risks. And I think, you know, actually the group of patients you're often using this, these drugs in are patients who've got cardiovascular risks. And, and they are, you know, they are contraindicated in patients with ischemic heart disease or heart failure. So for me, it is naproxen that I go to first, as it's probably the safest for the heart and is one of the more lower risk group of non-steroidals for GI side effects. And I use a PPI in really all patients now. I used to try and use various stratified risk factors or, you know, patients under a certain age, but actually... I now just use a PPI as a matter of course. But again, focusing on the lowest possible dose of the NSA for the shortest time um, and stopping it if possible. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I, I think that goes now with, with the whole management of pain. It's all about how are you managing your pain without chemicals? What are you doing to try and improve that? And then if we do use something, it's for the exacerbations, it's for those difficult times and let's use the minimum amount and let's see if we can find canny ways of being able to reduce that somehow by how we take it or when we take it. And um, it, it is really a much more complex thing to do now than just give out, you know, 200 cocodamol or whatever we used to do. And interestingly and, and helpfully, uh, Martin includes in his article, having gone through the gastro issues, don't forget cardiovascular and the renal problems just as a reminder that you know 
while we might be offsetting one set of problems, you've still got the effect on kidneys and the effect on cardiovascular system to think about as well. Absolutely. And, and the renal ones are the ones that quietly happen in the background without you being aware and then can come back and bite you. So, you know, the first thing I do when I get someone, I'm thinking, why is their renal function going off? And you look and you think, hello, they're either, you know, you might find they're taking ibuprofen, they're buying over the counter, but it's really important that you rule that out as a cause. Okay, great. Thank you very much. Um, and then finally this month, a, a case report. Um, what's, what's this one about? Yeah, so this is about um, a patient who developed DRESS syndrome, which is a drug reaction with eosinophilia and systemic symptoms syndrome. And so it's a DRESS syndrome with lamotrigine. Um, and I, 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 do, I do like these uh, case reports, not so much for the case, although that's quite interesting, but I always enjoy the fact that they um, remind you of the issues around dress. And I, I certainly found that they gave a very good description of the issues around dress. And um, I was quite surprised to, to learn that, that actually dress may occur in as few as one in a thousand drug exposures. Um, and therefore it's something which every prescriber should be aware of. I mean, the point they seemed to make was that it actually is quite difficult to spot um, and presents can present in quite different ways and you have to be kind of on your toes to actually pick it up sometimes. Absolutely. In fact, um, I'm pretty sure we've had a case of this in the practice uh, just this year, which um, we managed without recognising that it was dress, but actually which we recognised correctly that it was a drug reaction and stop the drug but you're right um, the thing about dress is it can actually be quite delayed after the onset of starting the medication you know two to six weeks and there have been cases of even um, three months or so so it, it is often something that comes on um, later later on from the start of the drug but classically you get a high fever and a rash usually in the upper part of the body with a lymphadenopathy um, and you get on the blood test this rise in eosinophils um, and often uh, liver, the liver is affected as well. The classic drugs that, that perhaps as GPs we ought to be aware of is allopurinol, carbamazepine and the sulfonamides. But there are now about 40 different drugs that are thought to be associated with DRESS. And I, just had, I had a quick look at the MHRA data for this one as well. And out of uh, 9,600 reports since the first one, first report, I think, of anything with the watch, was in 1973, there have been 27 cases of dress, of which one, one was fatal. So um, rare, but, but significant. Yes, and I, and I do wonder how rare it might be. I do wonder whether, um, you know, perhaps, perhaps we're not seeing dress as such but i think drug reactions rashes patients becoming quite unwell are are more common than perhaps we recognize i recently had another case of a man um, type 2 diabetic who developed really abnormal liver function and developed a hepatitis when we started their metformin um, so you know it, it, these interactions are all around us and i think as prescribers if if anyone becomes poorly you know soon after starting a drug the first thing you've got to ask yourself is why isn't this the drug that's causing this problem indeed good 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 point indeed and then what do you do with them how do you follow those up 
what's the mechanism for investigating them? What with regard to drug interactions in general, or or, or these sort of allergic or or immunological reactions to to, to yeah. Uh, so so I mean the case report goes to obviously address talks about just checking for other infective causes for this, and then the the management is obviously to stop the drug and and use prednisolone in um, in dress. Of course, for us, you know, it's really important that we yellow card these sorts of things, even if we think that. Um, this is something that everyone knows about. Um, you know, knowledge is always is always better. The more we know, the better. So um, it's really important as doctors that we yellow card even now. And usually now with the new IT systems, yellow carding is pretty straightforward. It used to be quite difficult, but now it really is much easier than it used to be. Just just press of a button from your clinical system. Exactly. Excellent. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you for listening to this podcast. Uh, you can find all our articles on our website at dtb.bmj.com. If you enjoy these podcasts, please consider leaving us a comment or a rating on the iTunes site. And you can find a link to the DTB podcast page on the notes that accompany this podcast. Thank you very much. And I hope you go well and stay well.